Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast, a part of JewishCoffeehouse.com. The show on where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. Welcome back to the Francisca Show. I am excited to have you back on here. Thank you so much for all your feedback. Happy belated Mother's Day to all the women out there. I am Francisca, your podcast launch and success coach. And today's episode is a little different because after the episode was done, I felt like I was covering a tabloid story, which isn't necessarily what we do here on the show. So to cover my grounds, I did decide to reach out to Bacheva Marcus, who we will be referencing in this episode, to hear her side of the story because that is my style, getting both sides of the story. Unfortunately, Bacheva is not doing interviews at this time probably for legal reasons. So I encourage you to keep your minds open. I would love to hear what you think on the WhatsApp chat. I did push our guest a little just to play devil's advocate as well as represent different sides. And for those of you who are careful about the language around sexuality that you consume, this episode may not be for you because there will be some explicit language in regards to sexual content. Nothing crazy. I'm just putting out a disclaimer. And before we get started, I want to highly recommend the episode this past week that came out on Orthodox Conundrum, which is a jewishcoffeehouse.com podcast that covered in depth the Roe versus Wade case and the halachic perspective on abortion. So if anyone's seeking that kind of guidance for how to think, how to feel right now, then that's a great resource for you. On this podcast, we will be covering this topic of abortion from a personal experience. So we'll be having a guest come on and talk about what her experience was like and how she supports other people through it. So stay tuned for that. Of course, if you're thinking of launching a podcast, do reach out to me. I'd love to help you launch your podcast and start your movement. I'm so excited to share that I finally finished my DIY podcast launch course that will be available to any of you who would like to launch your podcast on your own time, DIY style, with all the nuggets and tools that you need to do it successfully and on your own. I will be opening it up for beta testers. So if you'd like to take advantage of that price point, as well as be one of the first ones to try out this course, please do reach out and I'll send you a link to get started. And of course, if you do not need a podcast, another great way to support the show, because yes, this content is absolutely free. You can reach out and sponsor an episode. And if you stick around until the end, you'll find out what's coming out next week. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to The Francisca Show. Today, we are here to talk about what's going on with the Jofa scandal and in general, how are things progressing in the community and world of fighting against sexual abuse and fighting for survivors. So today on the show with us, we have Asher Lowy. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me in. The reason we're doing this episode is because I've been trying to read or hear about it in other places, and I still don't quite understand what's going on. So I was like, okay, this is the perfect way to learn. All I know is Jofa is the organization of Jewish feminists, and there is a scandal that erupted within that 
organization that has to do with allegations that are completely against feminism. So fill me in here. What's going on? I'm not sure when it started, but starting during the tenure of Philana Stockman as the director of JOFA, that's at least as far as I know. Batsheva Marcus, the noted sex therapist, is accused of having committed sexual harassment against Alana Stockman, which she has detailed on her Facebook page since the story's broken. And subsequently... Which was when? It was around three, four weeks ago. So around the beginning of April. And subsequent to Alana Stockman leaving, the circumstances of which were basically she reported harassment by Batsheva and the response from the board was... But, you know, here are your walking papers, here's severance, here's a non-disclosure agreement, get out. Sharon Weiss-Greenberg then took the position as director of JOFA, uh, and she experienced harassment as well, sexual harassment from Batsheva Marcus, which she has detailed to some extent on her Facebook page as well. She's issued a number of public statements in response to a number of JOFA statements, which I'm sure we'll get into later. I was made aware of what was going on at the end of 2018, the beginning of 2019, and at the time, it seemed like when Sharon was in the process of being pushed out of Jofa as well, she'd gone to the board and reported what she was experiencing. And the response was to retaliate against her, to curb her professional responsibilities and essentially stop her from speaking on behalf of Jofa, from working on new programming, from acting in her capacity as the director of this organization. And then eventually it culminated in her being told to leave given severance and pushed into signing a no-disclosure agreement to keep quiet about it. At some point, she detailed in one of the statements on her Facebook page that she was told by then-board co-president, current president of the board, Pam Scheininger, take another year of this abuse and then, uh, you know, and then it'll be fine. Uh, you won't have to deal with it anymore, which is a pretty shocking response to sexual harassment from an organization that claims to represent orthodox feminism. It, it's, it's made even more egregious by the fact that the nature of my relationship with Jofa uh, both personally and through Zaka, was in advocating for survivors of sexual abuse. I first got in touch with Alana Stockman when she was looking to put together a panel of survivors of sexual abuse to talk about their experience. And that relationship continued between me and Zaka and Jofa into Sharon Weiss-Greenberg helping to advocate for the Child Victims Act. In fact, she told me about what was happening in May of 2018 while on a lobbying trip to Albany to advocate for the Child Victims Act. So on the one hand, Jofa's putting in time and resources to advocate for child victims of sexual abuse. And on the other hand, they're covering up sexual harassment that, that was going on right then. And it's, it's even worse because in 2018 was when New York passed its first ban on non-disclosure agreements and sexual harassment cases. It's been amended every year since, but that was the first year that they passed it. So this was all in the air at the time, all while this was going on, all while Sharon was being sent packing with a non-disclosure agreement. Let's break this down a little bit because we have lots of different words and names of organizations. I think anyone listening is probably very curious what falls under sexual harassment. One can understand somebody advocating for the Child Victims Act and then harassment that some people would call sexual harassment or just regular workplace environment culture. And we did an episode on the Me Too helping or not. We talked about corporate culture a lot. So is it as bad? It's not for us to judge, but can we get some details on what has been happening? There's a limit to the amount of detail I can give because it's not my story to tell. I'll try to share what's already been shared on Facebook. Alana Stockman has been a lot more detailed about her experiences. She experienced sexual comments 
comments about her own sex life, quote unquote, recommendations for her sex life, culminating in, I, I think that the, the biggest thing that she said was that Batsheva Marcus just unsolicited bought her a vibrator and made some suggestions about how she can use it. That she posted on her Facebook page. With regard to what Sharon experienced, parts of it are detailed in an article that Batsheva, for some reason, wrote in Tablet Magazine before this story broke, where she, except that she spun it to favor her. But what happened to Sharon, I, I, I can't give as much information because Sharon has expressed both in public and in private that she's not interested in the details of what she experienced being public. But it was along similar lines, lots of sexual comments, lots of comments on her sex life, nasty comments about her body, comments about her pregnancy, just the, the kind of stuff that if people were hearing about a man saying it, they would immediately recognize it as sexual harassment. I think the only reason why there's any ambiguity in this case, and the only reason why anybody is giving Batsheva Marcus the benefit of the doubt in this case is because she happens to be noted sex therapist Batsheva Marcus who also happens to be a woman, people are generally primed to think of sexual harassment as a problem between men and men or men against women. And that does comprise the majority of cases. So that's not an invalid assumption, but it, in this case, you know, the fact that Batsheva Marcus is a woman doesn't mitigate what she did to create a hostile work environment and engage in sexual harassment against employees of Jofa. To give people a background what Jofa does, besides for supporting the Child Victims Act, what other kind of initiatives do they participate in? So they were very involved in expanding women's inclusion in orthodox spaces. So things like Maharat, they were very involved in, in working with and supporting. They were very involved in creating uh, partnership minions and women's davening spaces and encouraging women's learning programs and things like that. They were also representing women's interests in trying to include orthodox women in spaces that were more leftward, trying to make space for there to, to be women who are engaged in feminism authentically, but also within an orthodox context in spaces that were more geared toward reforming conservative movements. So on both ends, they were working on inclusion of women in religious Jewish spaces and religious Jewish leadership and in the activities that typically within orthodoxy are reserved only for men, despite the fact that there being no prohibition against women acting in those roles. They were very instrumental in that. These days, there are a lot of organizations that have picked up on that and are doing that work. I don't believe JOF is as necessary as it used to be, but back in the nineties, when it was founded, there absolutely was a need for an organization to unabashedly advocate for feminist interests within orthodoxy. Before we get to the more controversial parts, because I'm definitely going to push you a little bit, not necessarily you personally, but I'm going to want to bring up some of the issues that are bothering me personally about the story. But before then, can you give us background on who you are and the incredible work that you do and talk about Zaka? and maybe share a little bit about your personal story with us as well. I grew up in Bar Park. My family was not Hasidish, not exactly yeshivish, you know, kind of, I was raised by my grandparents. They were of a previous era. So, you know, it was more Heimish. More Heimish. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the rest of my family was more yeshivish with some Hasidish thrown in here and there. I'm a survivor of, of abuse as well. Uh, I was abused by my mother who lived in the house with my grandparents. That went on for a long time. It went, went on from when I was, I mean, as long as I can remember, so from when I was like five until I was 23, which is when I left. And I, I actually got involved with Zaka before I was out of that house. I got involved in 2012 
and uh, I'd been involved somewhat in, in advocacy in other spaces before that. And I left in 2014. So I, I was involved even while I was going through it. Was it sexual abuse? Was it emotional, physical, all of it? All of it. Yeah, it was all of it at different points. It wasn't all of it at, at every stage. But yeah, from about, I don't know, from, I would say from sometime when I was younger, you know, I, I don't remember the exact age until I was around 12-ish, I think, was the sexual abuse. The physical and emotional abuse was intermittent until I was 16. And then from 16 until I was 23, it was pretty much constant. And 20 and 23 is when I left. Were you the only child who was being abused by your mother? Do you have siblings? Yeah, so I was the only, I was the only child in the house. So I got involved with Zaka around the Nehemi Weberman case. Originally, Zaka had been founded in 2012 in response to the Internet Asifa, which was a gathering in New York City field to ostensibly ban the Internet. Surprise, it hasn't worked. But really, the point of the event was less to ban the Internet and more to give the Rabbanim and Askanim and the Haredi uh, world the power to enforce a ban on the Internet if they choose to. That's really what the event was about. The original Zaka group, which I was not a part of, was founded by Five Footsteps members, was in response to the Internet of And the basic idea of the protest was, listen, you're pouring millions of dollars into something as stupid as banning the Internet. Why don't you pour a couple of dollars into fixing the sexual abuse problem that the community has? You know, there's very clearly a sexual abuse problem. There's no resources given to it. The standard response is to cover it up and to ostracize victims and to make their lives miserable. Why don't you spend some of these millions of dollars that you spent on renting City Field and help some victims? I, at the time, was Haredi-ish. You know, I was still on the way out of that. These days, I'm not at all. You're not at all Orthodox or not at all Haredi? I'm pretty left modern Orthodox. But at the time, I, I felt community can hold two values at the same time. They can hold that the internet is bad and they can hold that sexual abuse is bad. And I didn't see the point in protesting one against the other. These days, I would absolutely go. I would be one of the organizers. But, but back then, I didn't feel like that. So I, I was arguing with the Zaka founders at the time, some of whom I was friends with, when you know, the case against Weberman broke. So that case, for those who don't know, Nehemia Weberman was an unlicensed therapist in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, who was counseling young girls in his office with the door locked. There had been a number of allegations against him, you know, over the years, no one had wanted to go public. There was one victim that did go to the police and Weberman was arrested. He eventually was sentenced to 103 years. It was reduced to 69 years. He's going to die in prison. But at the time, the response from the community leaders was to host a fundraiser at a wedding hall in Williamsburg to raise money for his lawyers. And so my entree into Zaka was to ask them to organize a protest outside of this wedding hall in, in response to this fundraiser. I was not at that protest, but there were about 150 people who showed up. There were a number of arguments that happened there, a couple of arrests from people from the other side who got a little angry. The fundraiser ended up raising about $500,000. And I, either that night or the next night, uh, a number of people approached the husband of the victim and offered him $500,000 to take his fiance and go to Israel and shut up about the whole thing, which he said no to. The two of them said no to. The case ended up going forward and he was sentenced to 103 years in jail. So that was my entree into Zaka. And then there were protests on and off through 2012, 13, and 14. 
we got involved in the DA's race at, at that point to protest against Charlie Hines, who was very much in the pocket of Satner and Williamsburg in general, and had covered up for a number of cases. At that point, Zaka kind of petered out. And at the end of 2016, I was approached by the founding members of Zaka and said, listen, we have this organization that we aren't doing anything with. Why don't, you know, you're, I, I was at the time working on the Child Victims Act in, in New York and was being pretty public about that. So they offered me leadership of the organization. They essentially said, here are the resources of the organization. They're yours. You could do what you want with them. And we started out holding protests in Bar Park and Flatbush to raise awareness about sexual abuse and about the Child Victims Act while advocating for the Child Victims Act, of course, going up to Albany and lobbying for four years, try to get the Child Victims Act passed, which it did in 2019. What's the Child Victims Act for anyone who doesn't know what that is? So the Child Victims Act was a law passed in 2019 that did a bunch of stuff. It was centered around the statute of limitations for child sexual abuse. Uh, statute of limitations is a part of the law that says that after you experience a crime or some harm, you have a certain number of years to pursue a case, whether criminal or civil. In New York, the statute of limitations was five years for child sexual abuse, and it didn't start until the child's 18th birthday. So practically speaking, the statute of limitations was age 23. Most victims of sexual abuse won't even tell anybody about it until many years later, way past 23. So you were fighting to give a chance for people who realize in their late 20s or 30s that this is happening to go and pursue criminal or civil charges. Yeah. So we got the criminal statute of limitations extended to age 28. The civil statute of limitations was extended to age 55. There was also uh, a part of the law that required anybody who had been sexually abused by a public institution, whether public school or some child welfare agency of New York to within 90 days of the harm, file a notice of claim that they plan on pursuing a case against the public entity. That was gotten rid of in the Child Victims Act. And most controversially, there was a one year, which was later extended to two years, a look back window opened during which any cases that had already passed the statute of limitations could be brought again in court. With the opening of that window, there were 10,857 cases filed in New York State, uh, about 250 of which were in the Jewish world, a couple dozen in the Orthodox world. No one should infer from that that there's a shortage of cases in the Orthodox world. The prevalence is either the same or higher. There are many forces that act on people to shut them up in the firm world. But as we go through these cases, then they're going to take a while. But as we go through these cases, there's going to be a lot exposed about the front world and the Orthodox world and the Jewish world in general and the nature of institutional cover-up and what we've seen. So that was the, the purpose of the Child Victims Act. And there's a lot more on this on the JOMA podcast that I listened to a few days ago. So go ahead and listen to that if you'd like more information on that. But back to you and Zaka. These days, Zaka is still focused on legislative advocacy. We worked on a bill called Aaron's Law in 2019, which mandated abuse prevention education in public schools. COVID kind of interrupted this. Our plan is to go back and expand that mandate to private schools as well. We also worked on passing the Child Victims Act extension, which gave it the second year. We worked with Unchained at Last, the organization run by Freddie Reese, to ban child marriage in New York. The legislature had partially banned it in 2017, and then we took care of it fully. It's completely banned as of 2021. Is that a Hasidish issue in, in the Jewish world? Yeah, so it's Hasidish and Syrian are the two big ones. Like Jewish Syrian or Syrian yeah. Syrian? Yeah. The community tends to marry young, so, so there are marriages that occur at 16 or 17 in the Hasidic world as well. Although in the Hasidic world, I don't know much about the Syrian world, but in the Hasidic world, it's getting less common. 
Although there is one group in New York, weird little cult run by Rabbi Yoel Roth, Yaeli Roth, who marries off children, 15, 16, 14, whatever. The boys are typically older, but they're also underage and the girls are very young and he marries them off sometimes with the parents' blessing, sometimes without the parents' blessing. Life to horse style? Kind of, except he tends not to marry them off to 30 or 40 year olds. His approach is basically, he's Breslov. So Breslov has this obsession with masturbation. They feel it's one of the worst things that you could do. So he takes it to an extreme and his position is, teenagers are going to do what they're going to do. We may as well marry them off as quickly as possible. So it's not an isser. So there, there's still that going on. But overall in the Hasidic world, child marriage is getting less and less common, but still, it's still an issue. So we bend that. And what we're working on now is called the Adult Survivors Act, which is basically the same as the Child Victims Act, but for adult victims of sexual violence. And it's going to open a one-year look-back window during which any old cases can be brought in court against either the individuals who committed the assault or any institutions that had a duty to report it or stop it and didn't. So now that we know a little bit about you and we could respect the work that you do, don't you think there is a difference between sexual abuse, child marriage, and then workplace behavior with adults? Sure. And, and there is... The, the issue, obviously, is the abuse of power. Somebody in position of power is being disrespectful. And we obviously, as people, recognize it less when it comes from a woman in power. But empowering people to have more agency and speak up and be able to say what they say without getting in trouble, as opposed to like starting scandals that sort of wash away children being abused by their parents and by their rebbies or being married off at 12, those are the scandals we should be focusing on. Not an adult is having a hard time at work because their boss is being inappropriate with them in terms of their gifts and comments, and they can't speak back. Why are we putting it in the same? Sexual harassment just sounds too close to sexual abuse, and it, they're so not the same. And then just to add to that, we live in a culture where all our entertainment, if anyone's consuming Netflix or the radio, it's very, very vulgar today. You know, what's acceptable on music, on the radio, very vulgar. Entertainment, music, TV. Why would we expect people to act suddenly? Well, we do expect them to act professionally, and especially if they're religious and orthodox and they represent religious values. But why are we so shocked when suddenly, you know, it makes people uncomfortable when that is the culture we live in. I'm going to answer your second question first and your first question second. Regarding why we should expect that people not act in, inappropriately in the workplace, despite the fact that pop culture contains a lot of sexual content, is the issue of consent. When someone turns on Netflix and they're watching something vulgar, they're watching something that they're choosing, they're opting in to watch that. It's kind of the same the same question comes up in, in revenge porn cases, you know, what's the big deal of someone, you know, a picture of someone that in their underwear being leaked by, let's say an ex-boyfriend who's uh, scorned and, you know, leaks a photo on the, on the internet of their, what's the big deal if they've posted a picture in a skimpier bathing suit the week before, right? The issue is the violation. The, the issue is that 
when someone is wearing a bathing suit on the beach, they're, that is their choice. They're consenting to be seen in that way. They may not want to be sexualized either. I mean, it's a beach, you know, bathing suits are worn on a beach just to take this example a little bit further, but at the end of the day, it's a matter of consent. Someone is choosing to be seen in a certain way in a certain place, and they're not choosing to allow their picture to be taken and shared in another circumstance. The fact that they did one at one point and the other at another point, and they're happy with one and unhappy with the other is their right because that's what consent is about. So shouldn't there be an option to speak back and say, hey, I'm not consenting to this kind of language or gift, and this is inappropriate, please stop it, and for that to shut it down? Why is it a scandal? Because they're not addressing it, and there's no one to go to, and HR is having them sign NDAs. That's why it's a problem. It's the cover-up, not what's actually happening. The fact that they don't have an infrastructure to deal HR fundamentally at the end of the day does not represent employees. They represent the company. They're there to protect the company against liability. So people going to HR, you're hoping that the company cares enough that if sexual harassment is happening, that they're going to do something about it. If someone speaks up against a sexual harasser though, and that sexual harasser happens to be, let's say in the case of Batsheva Marcus, one of the founding board members of the organization, you better hope that the rest of the board is going to back the victim and not the person doing it, who they sit in board meetings with, who, who they're only there because this person founded the organization with Blue Greenberg. The problem with sexual harassment is that, you know, it seems, it seems simple. You know, why doesn't someone just speak up? Why doesn't someone just say something? But the fact of the matter is there are consequences to doing that as evidenced by, by what happened with Sharon and Alana. You, you can speak up and say something, you tell them to stop. And actually that point was written by just a, a completely mind-blowing article written by Deborah Nussbaum Cohen in 2019, where she interviewed Batsheva Marcus on the subject of sexual harassment. And Batsheva said, yeah, sexual harassment is a problem, but women should, you know, have more responsibility for this. They should speak up for themselves and advocate for themselves. It's not everybody else's job to, to keep them safe, which is an incredibly self-interested way of, of presenting this. And the fact that a sex therapist would say that in public on the record, you know, excluding the fact that she was a sexual harasser is just astounding. And the fact that Deborah Nussbaum Cohen would publish that is even worse. But getting back to the point, you can lose your job over that. And, and losing one's job is one of the biggest stressors that a person can experience more than a divorce or a death in the family is losing your job. Financial instability is a huge deal. It can mean that all the years of work that you put into going to college, getting a bachelor's, a master's, a doctorate, all the years you put into building up your resume, getting to the point where you have a high level job will be down the drain if your boss decides to just keep you where, where you are. There's a book being written by Lana Stockman now, actually. It's called When Rabbis Abuse. I'm not going to give too much away because I hope people buy it when it comes out. But she details cases where there are employees who are sexually harassed in their workplace, in the nonprofit world. And the reason why they don't do anything about it, despite saying no, despite trying to tell the person to stop, is the reason they don't go further is because they know that if they get fired from this job and they don't get a good recommendation from the person who's sexually harassing them, they won't be able to get another comparable job, right? So this is why people keep quiet about sexual harassment. They don't speak up. They actually aren't empowered to do it because of all this stuff that happens, the retaliation and non-disclosure agreements, et cetera. I'm happy I brought this up because first of all, I sound like much of a Marcus by asking these questions. And second of all, because understanding the limited voice that employees have. I think also one of the things that people need to understand about sexual harassment is and this comes up also in sexual abuse, sexual violence is that, you know, people draw these weird and arbitrary lines between 
oh, it was just molestation. It wasn't rape, right? What's the big deal? You know, it's not that bad. It wasn't rape, right? We have a criminal system in this country that needs to function within a hierarchy of crimes, right? Not everything can be considered as serious as the other things. So like stealing a car is not the same as, I don't know, stealing a plane. But in terms of damage done, right? Let's say somebody goes and steals a plane from an airline, say from Delta Airlines to steal a plane and crash it. Delta Airlines has insurance, they'll be fine. Let's say you steal a car from somebody who doesn't have any insurance on the car itself. They're insured only for liability. They don't have enough money to buy another car. They need that car for their job. Stealing that car, it's less serious a crime, but the impact on the victim is terrible and much worse than stealing a plane. So in cases of sexual harassment and sexual abuse, it's the same way. There are people who have been repeatedly raped over years and years and years who somehow have the resilience to, to continue living a, a relatively normal life. And then there are people who experience the trauma in different ways from one incident and it, it crushes them. And that's not an indictment of them. That's just the way people are. Different people in different circumstances will experience different levels of trauma. And I could tell you from speaking to many victims of sexual harassment that the constant fear that you live in of what's going to happen. I, every day you go into work, what's going to happen today? What's my boss going to say to me today? What's my boss going to do to me today? This is constant feeling of powerlessness that victims of sexual harassment have because they actually are powerless in this situation. But that, it's not exclusive to sexual harassment. It's just workplace toxic environment which does not have to be sexual at all. It could be toxic and as detrimental to people having the fear that they're going to lose their livelihood. Sure. But there's an element to sexual harassment that is violative in a way that's not violative in regular, just general workplace bullying or harassment, right? Which both are very bad, but it's in the same way that the trauma isn't the same if someone punches you in the face or rapes you. It's it's not the same kind of trauma. The, the fact that the harassment is sexualized is intentional. It's meant to display an element of power over another person that's meant to violate them more than the normal exercise of power, even a negative exercise of power, misuse of power, abuse of power. That sexual element adds another element of trauma on top of it. People's sexuality is, is something so integral to them. Their body autonomy, sexual autonomy is something that's, it's fundamental in people. When other people violate that, it causes a trauma that's different than any other kind of violation. And I think the perpetrators of sexual harassment and sexual abuse and any kind of sexual violence know that. And that's why they're doing it. It's a very specific exercise of power against victims. Because I know a lot about toxic work environments and nonprofits and just regular corporate cultures. And it's it's the people in those organizations and companies are very, very miserable. And who knows what's sexual, what's not. Tell me more about what's happening now with Jofa, are they going to change their leadership or is it going to be like a Trump situation? doesn't matter who's running the situation as long as he's doing a good job with what he's doing, how he's doing it, people don't care. And that was an attitude that many people had. So with regard to Jofa and what comes next, I, I think in a responsible organization, what would happen is that there are a few levels here. You could do nothing and write it out, which is disgusting, but you know, it's something that companies sometimes try to do. There's the PR thing where you throw one person under the bus and you say, oh, well, it's this person's fault. We've gotten rid of them, problem solved. And then there's what should happen, which is every single person who sat there and let this happen should resign. And the reason why that's not 
going to happen like we all know it should. And by the way, the, the board in 2018, when this happened, is pretty much the same as it is now. There's maybe, I don't know, five or six different people. And the board president is the same. If they all got up and resigned the way they should, there wouldn't be much of an organization left. There would be those few board members left and there wouldn't be anybody else. And I think that the current board knows that. And despite the fact that it would be the right thing to do to reconstitute the organization, I don't think they're going to because it would be so embarrassing for them. They can't bring themselves to do it. So they're trying to PR their way out of this problem. They hired a crisis PR firm called Red Banyan out of DC, and they've been putting out statement after statement. First, they tried putting out a private statement that they circulated among a very limited group of people. They tried to contain the, the, the scandal. It went out to Jofa partners. It went out in certain private Facebook groups. It went out to like certain influential people. And it said basically like this didn't happen. And, you know, it's not, it's not even a non-disclosure agreement. This is just, you know, it's a confidentiality agreement. That's part of our standard, you know, when an employee leaves Jofa, we give them this arrangement, which I followed up with Jofa employees, other Jofa employees who left under, you know, in good terms. And I asked them, was a non-disclosure agreement part of a few leaving? And they said, no, so that's not true. There was actually an implied threat in the initial statement that they put out privately, which said, you know, despite the fact that the non-disclosure agreement has been violated numerous times by the other party, we have chosen not to enforce it and we never have, which is the threat of like, if you keep talking, you know, we are going to enforce it, which is not true. There were threats made. Both Sharon and Ilana were threatened a number of times before April 4th, before the first week of April when the scandal broke. Threatened with uh, what? Lawsuits for, for talking about it. I'll give you one example. In 2019, I officially cut off the relationship be between Zaka and Jofa in 2019. At that point, Daphne Lazar Price had just started at Jofa as the director. She was, I don't know, like three or five days into the job. And I had a number of phone calls with her, um, telling her about what the situation was and hoping that since she's new, she could do something about it. Turned out that she wasn't interested or wasn't empowered to. I, I don't know what the situation was, but it eventually led to a call between me and Pam Scheininger where she denied knowing about Alana and she denied that there was anything ongoing with Sharon. She basically said it's like one or two isolated incidents been dealt with, you know, whatever. It's fine. It's not an issue. And she knew she could get away with saying that because Sharon and Alana were locked into non-disclosure agreements and weren't supposed to talk about it. I knew about the sexual harassment that Sharon had experienced from the previous May, before she had signed a non-disclosure agreement, she had told me all about it. I knew about Alana's sexual harassment because other people had told me. Jofa sent an email to Sharon's lawyer threatening to sue her for breach of the non-disclosure agreement in 2019. Because they assumed that if I knew about it, Sharon must have said something after the non-disclosure agreement was signed. I don't call that non-enforcement. The fact that they didn't think that they could get away with the PR nightmare of actually suing Sharon for, for breaching the non-disclosure agreement doesn't mean that they didn't try enforcing it. They certainly leveraged it as a threat against her in 2019, in 2020, in 2021, and even in 2022. So that was their first statement. Oh, and by the way, I, I examined the original file. Someone leaked the original files to, to me of the private statement, as well as an email sent to the SRE network, which is the safety, respect and equity network, uh, network of about 150 organizations that have signed on to commit to adopting best practices around, uh, work, workplace safety and, ins and institutional safety and following best practices to prevent harassment and sexual abuse. They were kicked out of that organization after they refused to let you know, Sharon and Alana out of the non-disclosure agreement initially. I examined the original statement that was sent 
to these, this small group of people, the first statement, as well as the letter to SRE. The only edit that was done after the statement was written was to add the threat. That was the only edit was to add a threat. So this nonsense about them never having a force that they tried, they just couldn't leverage it to shut them up. That was the first statement. Then they put out another statement that, you know, was a little bit more apologetic where they acknowledged some wrongdoing and committed to doing better in the future and cited their previous good acts and said, we're going to be working with SRE to improve our policies going forward. Right after SRE had kicked them out, I don't know who they're working with exactly. That was their second statement. Sharon put out her own statement in response where she said, you know, this is not true. No, this is true. And not only that, in subsequent statements, she said that Jofa hadn't even reached out to her to try to make amends, but Sheva certainly hasn't. But I mean, I'm sure Sharon's happy about that. But Jofa hasn't reached out to, in putting out all these statements, they have not reached out to either Sharon or Alana to try to make amends. Meantime, the reason this whole story broke, the reason I'm able to talk about this now, the goal was always to get Jofa for years. The goal, the, 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 the goal was to get Jofa to let them out of the non-disclosure agreement so that they could own their stories and do whatever they wanted with it. If they wanted to tell the stories, probably fine. If not, then also fine. They just wanted to own their, their stories. That was always the goal. What ended up happening was Jofa at some point, so Batsheva writes an article in Tablet Magazine, basically detailing her side of it, where she lays out the story as she sees it. She paints herself in a good light. She poo-poos all of the claims of sexual harassment, even though pretty much everything she details in that article is sexual harassment, most notably buying dildos for the entire board of Jofa that nobody asked her to do. That's sexual harassment as well as comments that she made that she says, oh, they were mistakes. No, those weren't mistakes. That's sexual harassment. She wrote this article immediately, immediately, within like an hour or two, Jofa sends an email to, to Alana and Sharon saying you're released from your non-disclosure agreement, which is convenient for them. Except that they didn't release Sharon and Alana from the non-disclosure agreement. What had happened was, but Sheva violated the non-disclosure agreement. And as a result, Jofa was like, oh, well, now they could collect the liquidated damages. This is speculation. Jofa didn't actually say this, but, you know, they're thinking, well, the parties involved are bound by this non-disclosure agreement. If one party violated it, the other party can collect the damages, right? So they're like, oh, we, we're, we're, we're not interested in Sharon and Alana coming and collecting these liquidated damages. Let's just let them out of the non-disclosure agreement, which is what they wanted anyway. So they picked up some goodwill by letting them out of the non-disclosure agreement, but Sharon wanted me to make sure to mention it. it's very important that it gets mentioned that the non-disclosure agreement was not voided by Jofa. It was violated by Batsheva. Anyway, at some point also Pam Scheiniger releases a statement, a video that she's reading in a, you know, put on heartfelt tone, reading the statement that, sh that Jofa had put out previously to their mailing list. And so many people didn't buy it that she ended up taking the post down because it was just, it was, I mean. It was patently insincere. I think unless she's forced to, I don't think Pam is going to resign. And I think that the rest of the board is going to follow her lead on it at this point, because at this point, there's been so much public speculation about why is this board still in place after they... And Batsheva resigned? So Batsheva, there was an investigation done in 2018 after Sharon lodged her complaint the investigation found that Batsheva had engaged in, you know, stuff that's not great in a the workplace. They didn't find sexual harassment. Never mind the fact that they didn't interview any of the other employees who had lodged any complaints about Batsheva because they knew they couldn't say anything. You know, so if you have employees in non-disclosure agreements and you launch an investigation into someone, you can just ignore them because they're, they're not allowed to talk. 
as part of such an investigation. You can't bar them from testifying in a criminal investigation, but you can bar them from, you know, the, they're not allowed to talk in, in such investigations. It's convenient. But the result was that Batsheva was allowed to resign, except Jofa kept on promoting her and promoting her stuff, the joy of text podcasts or events, et cetera, her articles, like that's not exactly an uncoupling. And they wrote glowing articles. There were some strange articles that came out around that time. In Pam Scheiniger wrote an article in 2018 or 19 in JTA saying that Batsheva and Sharon are leaving Jofa. They both contributed so much and, you know, we're going to miss them so much. And are you serious? Like, Batsheva left because she sexually harassed Sharon. Sharon left because the board fired her after reporting that she was sexually harassed. And this went out in the Jofa newsletter as well. So that was the spin around it. So Batsheva landed pretty comfortably. And Sharon was left with a non-disclosure agreement and discarded. Until this came out. Until this Until came, out. Yeah. came out. Yeah. I'm sure there's a lot more to the story. Do you think organizations like these that are supposed to be advocates... It sort of expired. We've heard of some other organizations that had to change leadership and names and just start over again so they could focus on the good work with new leadership because it's not like it's a company or a product. You're here in a mission. Something has been messing around with the mission when you have inappropriate behavior going on. What do you think? I think that's what should happen with Jofa. I also think that there's... But Sheva, since, I mean, in her tablet article and, and also since has been posting articles about cancel culture and whatever, like, you know, like, oh, and you do one thing wrong and there's no redemption. And that seems to be the attitude of the supporters of the board of Jofa and the people who are inclined to not take this seriously. There was an article written by a faculty member at YCT, which also had Batsheva on the board and they kicked her off after the scandal broke. And Rabbi Dovlins or the Rosh Hashiva of, of YCT, actually, he had been running a podcast with her, The Joy of Text, very popular podcast about sex. And all the episodes were taken down and it was removed from the YCT website when Batsheva was removed from the board. One faculty member at YCT, I'm not going to mention her because I don't think her article deserves the clicks, wrote an article saying essentially, you know, Batsheva's done a lot of good work and like, you know, you can't, whatever, people make mistakes. And like, are we going to just, you know, engage in character assassination because people make mistakes? She apologized for it. And what more do you want from her? It's like, we as Jews have a very clear roadmap to Tshuva. It's not a mystery. And it's not something that people do in private. It's not something that you could just think about. When you've heard another person, the Rambam lays out very clearly what the process of Tshuva is. And the Rambam also says that it's not something that you could do in private. You could ask for, you could do tshuva to God for the wrongs that you've done to other people, but the other people have to be part of, of the process in order to get atonement for it. And dying is not atonement for it. And Yom Kippur is not atonement for it. The only way to atone for it is to pay restitution in whatever form to the victims of the wrong and the harm that you did and appease them to the point where they want to grant you atonement. I think the fact that Jofa has been putting out statements and has yet to reach out to Alana and Sharon demonstrates that they actually don't care about Chuva. They actually don't care about rectifying what they did. All they care about is writing this out until they can go back to the point where people have forgotten that this happened and they can continue operating as normal. That's not Chuva. And we as a community and as a society should insist that that's what Chuva looks like in such cases. There are people who have been harmed and we're silenced for years. We have to take responsibility. Absolutely. Yeah. Asher, it was so great having you on. Thank you for coming on and really sharing all this information in such detail. And if anyone wants to reach out to you, 
because of the work that you do. How can people find you? We're everywhere on social media. We're on Twitter at Zaka NY, Z-A-A-K-A-H-N-Y. And that's most of our socials. That's Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook. We're at Z-A-A-K-A-H. Our phone number is 888-4-ZAKA. So the number four is Z-A-A-K-A-H. And I want to also mention, we run a Shabbos and Yom Tov mental health hotline. It's a Pierce port hotline every Shabbos and Yom Tov. Uh, for anybody who, for whatever reason, needs someone to talk to, it's not just victims of sexual abuse, it's anybody. It's open day and night, every Shabbos and Yom Tov, and it's available at the same number, 888-4-ZAKA, 888-492-2524. And it's available by phone and by WhatsApp chat. And why is it only Shabbos and Yom Tov? It's Shabbos and Yom Tov be- because there are particular, there are lots of hotlines out there that operate during the rest of the week that people can call like RAIN or Crisis Text Line or Lifeline. But on Shabbos, there's a particular trauma that people go through on Shabbos, a particular need on Shabbos. And it takes time for people to explain to somebody on the other end of the line who doesn't know what Shabbos is, why they're in, in distress on Shabbos. And also having a firm person pick up on the other end kind of validates their decision. To, and we're under the rabbinical supervision of Rabbi Yosef Lau to operate on Shabbos. And why we don't operate the rest of the week is because no one works on Shabbos, so so they're available to staff a hotline. Everybody else works during the week. You have to pay agents if you want a hotline during the week. Our, our agents are all volunteers. Beautiful. Thank you so much for this. I really appreciate your time and all your knowledge and the work that you're doing. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for listening until the end. If you enjoy this podcast, make sure you are subscribed on your favorite podcast listening app. So it's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Make sure you are subscribed so you don't miss a show. If you like this podcast, you probably will enjoy other podcasts on jewishcoffeehouse.com. There's Intimate Judaism, Orthodox Conundrum, Chochmat Nashim, Let My People Eat. As promised, next week we will have a tribute episode in honor and memory of Donnie Morris, who died one year ago, Lagba Omer at Meron. If you'd like to sponsor an episode, please do reach out. We'd love for you to support the show. If you want to join the discussion group, the link is in the show notes. Join, participate. I appreciate all our members there and how respectful they are of each other and how there is freedom of speech and opinion there. So do join. For those of you who follow my music, there will be a new song, my first English song dropping on Lagba Omer. So I'm very excited to share that with you. And I hope you have a wonderful week. See you next time. <laughs>